0: We're looking at Genesis chapter 14 this morning, beginning in verse 1. And I would just remind you, since we've been out of this for um, a week or so, that Abraham and Lot have just separated. Lot picked the best part of the land. He judged by his eyes. Abraham walked by faith. Abraham said, you go left, I'll go right. You go right, I'll go left. Lot chose the well-watered area, and he moved closer and closer and closer until he was in Sodom. And we were told um, in, in chapter 13 that Sodom was notoriously wicked for all kinds of things. We saw that in the book of Ezekiel. And now, this is what we read Genesis 14:1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Shedeleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah. Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, and all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedileomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedileomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth-Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in shava Kirathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddam with Chedileum, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus." Then he brought back all the possessions, and he also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. I want to read a little further. After his return from the defeat of Shedeleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava. that is the king's valley And Melchizedek. King of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And the share of the men who were with me. Let Anir, Eshkol, and Mamri take their share. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I am sure that it's probably true for you, as it is for me, that when we turn on the news every morning, or we watch it in the evening, or we see it at the gym, we are thinking what we are watching are the really great events. Of world history. We think that what we're watching are the great things. We think that the wars that are occurring, when we see Israel and Palestine, we think that's the really great thing. When we see Russia moving into the Middle East and positioning itself to get uh, barrels and barrels, trillions of tons of oil, that we think those are the great things. Everything that we see, frankly, when we see the Kardashians, we think that's the great thing. For the life of me, I have no idea how the Kardashians got as famous as they did. But when we watch TV, as most of the world around us does, we are tempted to think these are the really important events in life. These are the things that matter. And the very interesting thing about the passage that we're looking at this morning is that this is really the first, in a sense, ancient Near Eastern televised war in which these great alliances are going to war with each other, and you might be tempted that the important thing is what this this King Ketalaomer is doing, and, and what's happening with this battle, and who's going to lay hold of these tar pits and all the resources, and you might be tempted initially to think, what does this have to do with me at all? Well, that section has nothing to do with you, but what God is doing what God, who seems absent in a sense, and yet what he is doing in the life of his people, what he's doing through Abraham, what he's doing in Lot's life, what God is doing in the life of his people is the really significant thing. The main thing, the really significant event is not the five kings in the north standing in battle against the four kings in the south. The really significant event is that God is building his church. You know, I thought about that, and I thought, no no amount of television will ever tell you what the really great events are that are happening Right before your eyes, happening in this building, happening in any church where God's word is faithfully preached, happening in the lives of God's people, happening in your life when God is dealing with you and disciplining you for sin, happening in your life when God is giving you victories, happening in the lives of those who are being redeemed out of the world, brought from darkness to light. Those are the great events. Those are the, those are the world-changing events. Those are the everlasting events. Those are the events that really and truly matter. And so, while you might be tempted to read Genesis 14 and think, I have no idea how this could ever be relevant to me in in 2015. I have no idea how this is relevant to me. Know that this is supremely relevant because what Moses is highlighting for us is that what God is doing through Abram is supremely significant to teach you that what he's doing in your life, spiritually, is the really great events that are happening on earth. Well, notice we are told that no sooner has Abram passed those two trials, and it's very interesting to me that the life of Abram is a life of trial. He's the man of faith. He has left his father's house. He has followed God. He has believed the promises. God had said that in him the nations would be blessed, and he has walked by faith, not by sight, and he has gone out. And he met that first trial where he went down into Egypt because of the famine and he was afraid that the king of Egypt would kill him and take Sarah to be his wife and so he lies and he falls. And then we see that no sooner does God restore him that there's another trial and now he and Lot are taking up the same portion of the land and as they are amassing wealth and as they are their, their homes and their, their uh, equity is growing they realize that there's not enough room and there's tension and so Abram is met with that trial again, and this time he acts in faith, and he says, you go left, I'll go right. You go right, I'll go left. And we see that Lot chooses, by his sight, Lot tries to lay hold of security for himself by picking the best place. And in that sense, he exhibits what believers are not to do in trying to take their lives into their hands, secure for themselves their futures. And Abram trusts the Lord. He trusts that God's going to provide. And and no matter where he goes, God has promised to give him all the land. And he goes and he worships. He goes back to that altar. He goes back to sacrifice. He shows that he needs a savior. And now you would think that Abram would be able to take a breath. He would be able to step back. He could get a little rest, take a little vacation. He's had some hard trials. And he has met with another trial this time as we are told about this uh, first military battle in scripture, and we're told about these world powers, these alliances, and this great battle where um, the king of Sodom came up with the brilliant idea that he would not pay taxes to uh, the king of uh, Shedeleomer anymore, but that he would rebel against him, and war broke out, and division broke out, and Lot is taken captive with all of the other cities and all the other kings. Now, it's very interesting in a sense, and I have to be careful in saying this, in a sense, you could read the first part of this chapter down through verse 11, and in a sense, you could say God really doesn't care about what's going on there. Obviously, He cares. Obviously, He ordained it. Obviously, it's part of His history. But what God is highlighting, notice verse 12, what He's highlighting is that these nations who are in disarray have taken Lot, who is Abram's nephew, who is a believer. They have taken Lot with him. What God cared about supremely was the well-being of his people, even though Lot was in rebellion. Now, before we talk about Lot, I want to point out that what we can take away from this account about these kings in battle and this first war that's recorded in Scripture is that you see the contrast between the world and the church. At least you ought to see the contrast. Here is fallen man who has constantly come through the judgments of God. I mean, um, the, these are all descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth who had been with Noah, who had witnessed the great judgment that God poured out. They had witnessed uh, their descendants, their, their predecessors had witnessed the scattering of the nations of Babel. They had seen God dealing. They had heard just like Abram had heard about the true and living God at some point in time. And yet you see that man's natural inclination is to try to supplant suppress and oppress other men. That is the natural default. You know, I think this is why no amount of saying, just give peace a chance and and no more war will ever, will ever bring about the cessation of war. Jesus said there will be wars. There will be rumors of wars. Don't be discouraged. Don't be anxious. All these things take place. That is, that's the division of the world. That's the world hates Itself, you know, that's the great one of the great deceptions. And I think I realized this after I was converted was that people I thought cared about me didn't care about me. They really just cared about pleasing themselves. And they wanted me to be doing whatever wicked things they were doing with them. That's it's not love. It's not care. It's not friendship. It is a faux friendship of people who are trying to make their own consciences feel better. And when that can't stand up and when there's not enough money or resources or security, there's war and there's hostility because at the end of the day, everybody's out for number one. That's really what you see in the first 11 verses is that by nature, all men are out for number one. It's not enough that Ketaleomer had his little kingdom. It's not enough that he was the king of this one small country or nation. It's not enough that the other kings were together there um, and, and had their little influence over their own little sphere. They were pulling together in alliances and they were trying to suppress and oppress others so that they could gain control of resources, so that they could... It's self-preservation, self-aggrandizement. You know, John Calvin has this marvelous statement on his in his sermon on this section where he says... Every one of us is so full of pride and arrogance by nature that we will forget our own place and duty and even God himself in order to gain our own self-interest. Every one of us is so full of pride and arrogance that we will forget our own place and our duties in the world and we will forget God himself in order to promote and lay hold of our own self-interest. I think that's... The very clear lesson of those first 11 verses, that's the world. That will always be the world. If you look at the Middle East, the Middle East is warring with itself. Um, Radical Islam may hate Christianity, but it hates radical Islam. The world hates the world. The world is full of men who are trying to dominate and oppress. And by way of contrast... We see Abram, and Abram is the model of a believer. Abram is trusting God. He doesn't know where he's going. He's living in tents. He hasn't laid hold of security. Abraham is securing God's hands, but he is not securing things for himself. Lot, by way of contrast, had picked a well-watered plain. He wanted to live in the nicest place with the best resources, And, and yet we see that Abram, and this is the really important point this morning, Abram, as he goes to battle, is not driven by self-interest. Now you could say, well, sure he is. That's his nephew. I mean, come on. Abram is not driven by self-interest. Abram could have said, well, and let me say this this morning, all of us do this. When somebody makes a stupid decision, we say, well, they got what was coming to him. And Abram could have easily said, well, Lot got what was coming to him, didn't he? I told him, and yet Abram acts in complete um, dependence on God. He acts out of love for his fellow kinsmen and for a fellow believer, and you see that he went to war to deliver Lot. Abram, uh, we're not told, cared about the king of Sodom or any of the accolade or any alliance. He won't take anything from the king of Sodom, but Abram goes to battle in order to deliver Lot. Now, If we take a step back and we say, "Okay, how do we move from the fact that this is a physical battle in which we are not engaged personally right now? And how do we how do we then understand that this is spiritual in nature and that there are spiritual lessons about the life of faith in this section? I think the thing that we see is that God is teaching Abram that life and the life of faith is warfare. It is spiritual Warfare. He is teaching Abram that at every turn there will be trials. At every turn there will be spiritual warfare. We often say, at least I say, if I'm going through an extremely difficult time and one of my mentors, whenever I call him and tell him about difficult circumstances, he'll say, I smell sulfur. (laughs) I smell sulfur. Something's going on. This is spiritual warfare. Um, The entirety of the Christian life is spiritual warfare. The entirety of the believer's life as a sojourn, a sojourning pilgrim in this world is spiritual warfare. At every turn, we are coming up against the attacks of the evil one, the challenges of the world, the the, 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 the sin that causes so much problems in the world, in our own marriages, in our lives, in the church. Sadly, at every turn, in every sphere, the believer's life is a life. Of spiritual warfare, you have the world warring with itself, and now you have the believer warring against the world. Now, um, in order to understand the setting of what Abraham's doing, we have to understand that God is doing a number of things. God is doing a number of things. Now, very interesting. You don't read about the Lord anywhere until the end of the chapter when Abram says, "I have sworn to the Lord." We don't read about God acting. Um, the chapter is silent, and yet we are reading through the lines of everything that we read, and we're seeing that God is doing things. God is doing, always working in the lives of his people. God is limiting the wickedness of the world. One of the things God does through the world at war with itself is that he is limiting and restricting the world. If, you may say, what do you mean? Well, if ketel had been allowed to just keep dominating, he would have destroyed the world. If Hitler... Had been allowed to keep going. If Mussolini had been allowed to keep going and hundreds and perhaps thousands of other dictators throughout human history had been allowed to keep going and God had not used war itself to limit and to restrict the wickedness of men, the world would destroy itself. God is also chastening Lot, and this is a very important point. Lot chose by his eyes, Lot chose according to the flesh. Now, this may be the most unpopular and yet most important of all Christian doctrines. I had a woman in this building actually, many months ago, tell me, "When when we do things wrong, God doesn't do anything to us." Wow. <laughs> um, the Bible is replete with teaching that those that the Lord loves, He chastens. He disciplines them. That actually, in a sense, he brings redemption through discipline. Um, and and we are charged in Hebrews chapter twelve. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord. For whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. What Lot is experiencing in this chapter is discipline. When we when we have uh, we have given over to the flesh. When we are living in sin. When we are doing whatever we know we ought not to be doing. And difficulty comes that very well may be the Lord chastening us so that we would turn back to him. God is using even Lot and his family being carried captive. Who knows what horrible things happened to his family? And God is using that to discipline Lot because Lot is called in the scriptures righteous Lot. God is restricting the evil of the world through these uh, emperors fighting with each other. God is disciplining and chastening one of his own who has chosen to go and live in the world. Now, when we cast that off, let me say this this morning as um, non-winsomely as possible. When we cast off embracing the fact that God chastens us, um, we are in a very, very dangerous place spiritually. And you know what? The tendency is to cast that off. The tendency is to say, to just dismiss our actions, say, no, this isn't happening because of my sin, Um, It is the worst, most dangerous place in the world to be if you're a believer. I'm going to say that as clearly as I can this morning. David, King David, who was an adulterer and a murderer long after he was a believer, um, wrote those great words in Psalm 119, It is good for me to be afflicted that I may learn to keep your commandments. David understood the difficulty and trial and affliction sometimes, perhaps, often occurred in his life to chasten him. I'll never forget, this was a shocking thing to me when I was preparing for ministry, Um, Samuel Rutherford, who had a very difficult life, um, great Scottish Presbyterian of the um, 17th century, uh, Rutherford wrote his letters, they're they're super famous now, letters of Rutherford, and um, he wrote to a woman who had um, suffered some great loss in her life, Lady Kenmere. And he had said in this one letter, and I realized almost no pastor would ever have the audacity to say this to a congregant today because most congregants would never receive it. But he said to her, um, learn to receive the rod of affliction and see what God is doing to grow you spiritually. I prayed that once at a very large church that I was an intern in, Um, in a major city up north, and um, I prayed for a woman I didn't know and knew nothing about her, but prayed that the Lord would heal her. Um, In a pastoral prayer, I prayed that if um, the Lord was using this in her life, that she would grow spiritually through it. Um, The senior minister called me into his office the next day, and he had a three-page letter of complaint from a congregant that I had prayed that. So I want to press this morning how, how serious this is, that God was chastening Lot very clearly. Lot decided to move closer and closer and closer into the epicenter of the wicked world. He chose the world for himself. All of us love the world far too much, every one of us. Anybody that says they don't love the world at all, is foolishly deceived. Every one of us loves the world far too much. That's why we need a passage like this. That's why we need to learn that God lovingly disciplines his children and through that discipline brings them on to glory. The way to glory is through the cross. The way to glory is because of what Christ did. But one of the means that God does in bringing us along is to chasten us so that we might return to him. That is a precious, precious doctrine. Let me press that home this morning. That is not... A harsh or hard doctrine. It is a precious, beautiful thing. We'll notice that God is using Abram to fight the fight of faith in the midst of all the other things that he's doing. And notice that he is told in verse 13 that Lot had been taken captive. And notice verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen, note he doesn't care about those other nations, when he heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, Born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, the question we have to ask is why, why does he mention 318 men? Is that just an arbitrary detail? Is it just him saying, hey, you know what? Abram had 318 people who went out to battle. I think, I think the reason why that's included in scripture is because God is teaching us that humanly speaking, there is no way that Abram should have won this battle. Humanly speaking, Abram should have been defeated. If, if five kings in alliance with each other were defeated by four kings, humanly speaking, Abram should have been defeated by these four. These four were obviously strong and mighty, They were valiant in battle. If they could could oppress an alliance of five other kingdoms and nations, what could Abram with his 318 servants do? Now that's, that's a picture for us, that we are learning that the spiritual battles of life are of the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. As I thought about this, I thought about David going to Goliath and that great story where Goliath is this huge, massive military giant. No one would fight Goliath. And David comes and he says to him, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And I think of Gideon where God cuts back his army. He cuts back the army and he keeps cutting it back and he keeps cutting it back and he keeps cutting it down until Gideon's left with 300. And the point, the point of that is that God would teach his people that any victories that they will win in this life, God is teaching us that any victories that we will gain over our sin, over the world, over the flesh, over the evil one, any victories that we win must be won by him so that he gets the glory and that we understand that we can do nothing apart from him. I think um, of those words in John fifteen five, where Jesus says, uh, without me, you can do nothing. I think so often we think we can take our lives and our striving and our trials and our challenges and spiritual warfare into our own hands. We think that somehow we can take it into our own hands. We can conquer in the flesh. If we're just smart enough, if we just make the right moves, if we just make the right determinations, if we if we, if we we position ourselves properly, if we align ourselves with others that can help us through trials, and we don't get on our knees and cry out to the Lord. And I think what Moses is telling us here is that Abram is... Least prepared for battle, and yet he is most prepared for battle. And notice God gives him wisdom. Verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. There is something shocking about this. There is something unexpected, or ought to be unexpected, that Abram could accomplish this. Now, uh, I think, in redemptive history, this is moving forward it 's a a precursor. it is a type Abram here is a type of the son of abraham jesus christ he is He is showing us in this historical picture prophecy what Jesus would do, that by himself he would go to battle. In an unlikely way, he would gain the victory. When Jesus lays his life down at the cross, he is not doing so as a passive victim. Let me say that this morning. Jesus was not a passive victim. He was an active warrior. When he laid his life down, when he was crucified, Jesus went to battle. Jesus went to battle to defeat enemies that, appeared much stronger and greater. All of our sin, the world, the, the world under the sway of the evil one, Satan himself, forces of darkness, Jesus came conquering and to conquer. I love the way that the writer of Hebrews speaks about, it's one of my favorite ways that the cross and what Christ accomplishes is spoken of in, in Hebrews 1, I believe verse 4 it says, when he had by himself purged our sins. When he had by himself, when he was in the garden, and he's with his disciples, and he, he leaves um, the eight, and he brings three with him, and he asks them to pray with him, and there's a sense where you feel that Jesus' soul is already filling with agony, thinking about the wrath that he's going to endure on the cross, and, and he, he wants the companionship and the fellowship. He wants his friends, to come and strengthen him in prayer and to call on the Lord with him. And they, and they fall asleep, as we so often do when we try to pray. Fall asleep. And, um, and he leaves them, and, and the gospel writers say that he goes further from them, a, th- a stone's throw from them. And, and in that little phrase, in that phrase, is really all of the imagery that Jesus by himself, seemingly outnumbered, out-resourced, full of weakness, full of fear, looking into the cup of God's wrath that he would have to drink to be made the sin bearer for all of those that he came to redeem. In order to redeem his brethren, he would go into the no man's land of loneliness and he would go forth to battle by himself to redeem his brethren and to bring many sons to glory. I think there's a picture of that. I think that what we're being told in Abraham redeeming his, his brethren, his nephew, is that God would redeem his people. I also think, and let me say this this morning, that there is a lesson here for us that we are to care deeply for both family members and for those in the body of Christ. We are to care about the spiritual condition. How often in the New Testament, We are told to bear the burdens of others, to go after those that are wandering and going astray, to hate the garment spotted by the flesh, but to snatch some from the fire, to restore a brother or sister who are sinning with the spirit of gentleness, to rescue those who are wandering. There's a picture in what Abram is doing that we who have been redeemed ought to seek the good and the spiritual rescue of those around us. Well, I think also, secondly, and we'll close with this this morning, we notice that there is a contentment of faith. There's a fight of faith for Abram, but now there is the contentment of faith. When he comes back, he is met by that mysterious figure, Melchizedek. You'll learn all about him next week. He's one of the most important figures in the Bible, one of the greatest types of Jesus, teaches us more about Jesus than almost anybody in the Old Testament. And yet he is met by both Melchizedek and... By the king of sodom now remember he's just brought back the king of sodom all the people all the possessions um he has just brought back nations he has just brought back the possessions of nations and the king of sodom wants to give abram all of it now i wonder if we were in abram's position i know what lot would do that's pretty clear lot would be like "Yep, let's have all the possessions (laughs) And, and I wonder if you were in Abram's position, what you would do? Would you think that's harmless? Well, I, I did go out to battle. I did rescue everybody. I mean, I should get something for that. I should get some kind of payment for that. Um, it really does kind of belong to me. I'll give the people, I'll take the possessions. And yet notice what Abram says to the king of Sodom. Notice this. Verse 22, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand, I have sworn to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Uh, Ligon Duncan very helpfully says this. If the world can say of us, even he has his price or she has her price, then God is not the Lord of our life. I want you to think about that soberly this morning. Abraham smelled bribery. Abraham smelled cronyism. Abraham understood that he could be denying um, his trust that the Lord was the possessor of heaven and earth, that the Lord would provide um, when the king of Sodom came and said, Take everything. And Abram said, I will not take anything. Um, I have a friend who went through a very hard time in ministry and he and, he and the church he had been at many years ago had built a very extravagant building. Um, they had a number of very deep pockets in this congregation. They had built a very extravagant, extravagant building. And, um, and they had done it for, sort of for the wrong reasons. They were in competition with another church. It was just, it was just worldly. And I'll never forget, uh, the church was falling apart internally And I've actually seen this happen on a number of occasions in in recent years, um, falling apart internally because some of the people that were leveraging the the mortgage in the church were causing all kinds of sinful chaos in the church, trying to get their way, asserting themselves, um, just full of pride. And I'll never forget what my friend said to me. He looked at me one day and he said, he said, we, we leveraged we mortgaged away our right to do church discipline and I immediately thought of Abraham saying to the king of Sodom, I will not take anything lest the king of Sodom say, I have made Abram great. God made Abram great. God makes believers great. The more we trust him, the more we rely on him, the more we learn contentment in life and trusting him, even when we're faced with those, those sort of covetous, envious um, temptations, when, when we are faced with, hey, you know, here's, here's a way... to to partner up and to get more and to be more secure, God must be the Lord of our life. Now, I want to say this to us as we close this morning. Um, Maybe as you examine your life, you think, you know, I feel like whenever I face the battle in life, I'm failing. I'm constantly failing. I'm like Abraham in chapter 12. Every temptation, every trial, I feel like I'm failing. There is mercy and grace in Jesus for that. There is forgiveness in Jesus. It doesn't matter if you failed 50 times recently. If you will turn back to the Lord, if you will rely on him, there is grace and mercy in Jesus. It's one of the beautiful things about the gospel. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If anyone confesses his sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there's a lesson to learn. There's a lesson that we would learn. I want to be strong in the battle. I want to be strong in the grace that's in Christ. I want to overcome when I'm faced with temptations. I want to be a blessing to other believers. I don't want to be driven by self-interest. I want to be able to live by faith in the promises of God, fixing my eyes on Jesus, and live out of love for the brethren, wanting good for them. You know. By the way, that is the whole of the Christian life. I mean, the whole of the Christian life is summed up in this. Faith toward Christ, love for the brethren. If you are fixing your eyes on Jesus, if you are sitting at his feet, if you, are, if you are sitting at the foot of the cross on a daily basis, if you are calling on him and walking by faith, if you are proactively trying to love the brethren, you will be every bit as great as Abraham shines in this chapter. Abram was the great one of the earth. You know, it's funny. Um, the only... The only pastors, the only Christians you tend to see on television are either charlatans or those that are being brutally persecuted. But God is doing hundreds of thousands of things in the lives of his people all through the earth. The great things that you see on television, the events that you think are the great things going on, the people that you think are the great people and the important people are not really the great and the important people. The really great and important things are what God is doing in the lives of his people. I hope that that's a comfort to you. I hope that you'll think about what is the Lord doing in my life and that you'll go back to the Lord Jesus and go forward in victory. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for these valuable lessons. We pray that you'd help us to mine The scriptures more that you would give us more of the riches that are in Christ That you would arm us for the battle as we go forth this week ahead that you would make us sensitive to the fact That we are engaged in spiritual warfare. We pray our God that you would not allow us to think that um, The wars and the elections and all of the things that we see on television are the great things But what you're doing in us We pray our God that you would renew our minds and our souls by the Holy Spirit, that, that you would fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, that you would help us to walk by faith in him and to be content that we possess him because you are possessor of all things and have freely given us all things in Christ. We pray, our God, that you would help us to this end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.